Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. So in this series, the book of Acts, we've been talking about the history of the church. The church began in Acts chapter 2, the moment of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost was the, the birthing of this thing called the church. And it's important for you to know what you are a part of because some of you have been coming to this church for many years. Some of you are brand new to the church. Some of you grew up in different churches and you have your idea in your mind of what church is supposed to be like. And sometimes you have, you have an understanding of what you saw growing up. So you expect that's what the church is supposed to be like. Or you've seen churches on TV and you think, well, that's what the church is supposed to be like. And some of us see those things and we think, I don't want to be a part of that. But the Bible tells us what the church is supposed to be like. And that's one of the reasons why we're diving into the book of Acts, because I want you to see that as a body, who are we supposed to be? What is this church supposed to be like? What is this church supposed to be about? It's, it's not some magic formula. The Bible tells us exactly what it is. A few weeks back, we talked about the snapshot of the church. And we gave you just a brief picture of what the church was like in that moment, that they were a powerful church. They were a persecuted church. They were a persistent church. They were a pure church. And we talked about those things, but this morning I want to flip it around a little bit because I want to actually want to dive a little bit deeper. And rather than look taking a snapshot of the church, I want to give you a portrait of a man in the Bible, in the early church, that we owe a debt of gratitude to. A man in the Bible who, when we look at his story, we're going to see a devotion, a, a heart that was so sold out to God that is going to instantly cause us to admire him. This is going to give us feelings of admiration and respect for this man because of who he was and what he was willing to do. And I hope that as we look at this man's life, you see a picture of what we're supposed to be moving towards. This message will not be, you need to be doing this. Why aren't you doing this? This message is a picture of what we're moving towards. The title of my message is The Portrait of a Martyr. The Portrait of a Martyr. Now, before you leave saying, that's weird, I didn't come here to hear you talk about me dying, I want to remind you of what that word martyr means. Martyr is the Greek word martus, which simply means witness. Witness. To be a martyr is to be a witness, but a witness of what? A witness of what Jesus did. A true witness is someone who doesn't just, not someone who lays their life down at the end of their days. They die for the sake of Jesus, which is what many of us come to know of what a martyr is. And that is an accurate term. But nonetheless, that witness is someone who lays their life down, not just in the end, but they're willing to lay their lives down for Jesus every single day. They're willing to be obedient to him. They recognize it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. So we're going to talk about this martyr, the first physical martyr in the Bible, a man by the name of Stephen. Now to catch you up, two weeks ago we were in Acts chapter 6 and the church was in a time of conflict. Now we talked about this, but diversity is beautiful. 
Diversity within a church is a beautiful thing. You should look around and see people that don't look like you. You should look around and see people who came from a different part of town than you did. People who weren't raised like you. You're supposed to do that because that's what heaven is going to look like. Heaven will be diverse. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there won't be a black church in heaven, a black piece of heaven, a white part of heaven, a Hispanic part of heaven, and a Korean, come on, shout out to our elder David, side in heaven. It will be heaven. And they won't look like you. Every nation, tribe, and tongue will come together bowing their knee to Jesus in heaven. So the church should look like that. But with that diversity comes problems. And we saw in Acts chapter 6 how the Greek-speaking Jews were complaining about the Hebrew-speaking Jews. Because remember, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, those were like the traditionalists. Those were the ones who they were like the real, real Cajuns. The ones who every now and then, every day you're going to eat boudin, right? You're going to eat boudin and cracklin. When the weather gets cold, it's not a cold front, it's gumbo weather. You would not dare put tomatoes anywhere near your gumbo. And every now and then, you just have to get out the saying, boudaying and shat. If you don't say that once a month, you feel like you broke tradition. Right? That's what the Hebrew-speaking Jews were like. They were traditionalists. That was what they did. They stayed true to the Hebrew traditions. But yet you had these Greek-speaking Jews who not only did they speak the Greek language, they were heavily influenced by the Greek culture. Those were like the Baton Rouge Cajuns. I mean, may yeah, they hunt, but that's about it. That was kind of the difference between the two, right? There were a lot of cultural divides, and we saw the Greek-speaking Jews complaining that their widows weren't getting the same amount of food that the Hebrews speak. So they felt like they were being, they were being um, uh, dis- uh, discriminated against. And so the apostles in the wisdom of God said, you know what? What I want you to do, Greek-speaking Jews, is choose, select from yourselves seven Seven men that can come and serve these widows. And the Bible tells us that these seven men were selected. And one of them was a man named Stephen. Now let's get to Stephen's story. And then I want you to see a picture, a portrait of his life. And think, hopefully we can learn from. Acts chapter 6. This is his story. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. As I just mentioned. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an early an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So there was a problem and the problem was solved by these seven men being selected. Now we see this man, Stephen, chosen and appointed by the people. And his job was to serve. 
He didn't come with some grandiose title. His job was to serve widows who didn't have enough food that were complaining about not having enough food. That was his job. But not only did he take that responsibility and serve, probably a position that was not given a whole lot of gratitude initially, but he realized that his responsibility was not just that, it was to be a witness to those around him as well. See, there's a lot to be said about that, and for the sake of time, I'm not, I'm not going to go too far into it. But when we're witnesses for Jesus, we're not just witnesses with one another in the church. We're witnesses for those who need this message outside of the church. And he found himself in, in conversations with people that were not Christians because he was trying to win them, even though his quote-unquote role was simply to serve those in need. He realized, no matter what my occupation is, I'm a witness for Jesus. I don't have to have pa- pastor in front of my name to be a witness for Jesus. I don't have to have theological training to be a witness for Jesus. I just have to have seen what he can do in my life and in the world, so I'm going to share it with them. He was a witness. He was a witness. Verse 8 says this. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, this is very important, we're going to come right back to this, from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, from Alexandria, and from Cilicia in the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. See, in that day, The Jewish people believed that the pinnacle of the presence of God, the ultimate place where God's presence could be found was the temple. This is what they called temple Judaism. This is where everything was based around what happened at the temple. If you wanted to find God, it was in the temple. But nonetheless, there came a moment where God's people, Israel and and Judah, they were disobedient to God. And I'm just going to go here for a moment because I want to build this out so that you understand it. They were disobedient to God and God judged them by sending them to other nations. Israel to the Assyrians and Judah to the Babylonians. The temple was in Judah. And so now this place where you're supposed to be able to worship and meet with God, I'm now shipped to Babylon so I can no longer worship God in the temple. So they started gathering and meeting with one another in, in, in these small little gatherings later came to be known as synagogues. A synagogue is basically like a small church that's a branch off of the big church. It's kind of like if our church was gathering and meeting and we said, we're also going to put a little church right there at this community, this community, this community. But everybody come back together when you really want to meet with God. That's what a synagogue was like. And this synagogue was, this, in this story, was called the synagogue of the freed slaves. Now, why was it called that? I'm giving you some history. Now, listen, this is not so you can walk out of here and try to be impressive and be smart. Again, I'm building a case There was a a Roman uh, general, his name was Pompey. Many of you have heard of Pompey. Pompey would take Jewish people as slaves. And he would enslave them. And eventually he released them. And so the men that were in this synagogue, the synagogue of the freed slaves, were probably men who were enslaved by Pompey. 
And so they were Greek-speaking Jews. They weren't Christians. They were Greek-speaking Jews who met together in this synagogue. This was like their church service outside of the temple. Let me tell you something else. The Bible tells us something else about these men. They were from Cyrene, Alexandria, and Cilicia. The capital city in Cilicia was Tarsus. Who do we know in the Bible from Tarsus? Saul. Saul or Paul of Tarsus, who was a part of this synagogue with these men who were arguing with Stephen. This is very important. We'll come back to that. But Paul, the reason why we're doing this, Paul is going to play such a big part in the rest of this series. But let's go back to our, our story, our text. Verse 11. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. They roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. Now, Stephen was debating with these men about Jesus being Lord and Jesus being Messiah, and they didn't believe that. Nobody could argue with his wisdom. He knew the word of God so well that they could not win. How many of you know what it's like to be in an argument with your spouse and they're winning, so you just reduce it down to accusing them of stuff? Don't you dare act holy. I counsel most of y'all, so I know this is true. It's like being in an argument and you know they're winning and you just, you start acting like a child. You start going, you know what, you're just, you're stupid. (laughs) I don't know what that's like. My wife has told me that's what she does sometimes. I don't know. I'm just playing. Let's get back to the Bible. Okay. Verse 13. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth, excuse me, was, will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. The glory of God was literally shining through his face. We see this in the Old Testament as well with Moses. When Moses would meet with God, the glory of God would shine on his face so that everybody saw it. But even as the glory of God is shining in front of these men, all they could see was their anger and their rage and their religion. Isn't it amazing how we can sometimes miss what God is doing because he does it differently than how we think he's going to? His face is shining in the presence of God. And all they could think about is how he's breaking our traditions. Acts 7, 1 says, then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? So they, they're furious with him, but they give him a moment to speak. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to tell you everything that he says, because in all honesty, it was 52 verses. His response to those Jewish leaders was 52 verses, the longest message we see in the book of Acts. And I'll give you the gist of it before I get to our point. He basically tells them, and and within his 52 verses, he goes back to the story of Abraham, how Abraham was the father of their nation and how God 
God called Abraham to father this nation and how it was birthed. And then he goes on to talk about Joseph in the Old Testament. And he talks about how Joseph was called by God to save their nation, to save not only them, but Egypt and all of those things. And how even though Joseph was called to save them, how Joseph's own brothers rejected him. And then he goes on to talk about how Moses was called to save his people. And the multiple times that God's people rejected Moses, even though Moses was again called to save them. And then he goes on and talks about this tabernacle. And before the temple was built, they literally had a giant tent that they would carry around with them. And they would make, they would roll this tent out. And that was the place that they worshiped. So he's going through all of these things. And I believe he's given them this history lesson so that he can prove two things to them. Because this is what they were accusing him of. You're against Moses' customs and you're against the temple. And I believe what he tells them is this. Number one, he was telling them how the people have always rejected the ones that God sent to save them. Because he they were rejecting the fact that Jesus was Lord and that Jesus was sent to save them and they were rejecting him the exact same way they rejected everybody else God sent to them. But then he's also telling them that you keep your folks so focused on this temple. Remember when you didn't even have a temple, we had a giant tent that we carried around everywhere and God met with us there because the presence of God is not subjugated to this building. And for some of us, you need to know that the presence of God is not only in this building, the presence of God is in you. It's in you. And then he just gets blunt with them. And I love this. Chapter 7, verse 48, he says, however, the most high doesn't live in temples made by human hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heavens and earth? And then he just says it. He says, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's why your ancestors, that's what your ancestors did. And so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one. The Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. As you can imagine, they didn't like that. And then he goes on. Verse 54 says this. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations. And they shook their fist at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. They were so angry at him. They literally took rocks, 
dragged him out of the city and threw rocks at him until he died. And we see in this story the very first physical martyr in the Bible. Though he was the first, he certainly was not the last. Because the book of Acts will go on to tell us all about different men and women who, were, who loved Jesus so much that they were willing to lay their lives down for him. And this may seem foreign to you this morning because we live in the Western culture. But there are places all over the world that the moment they decide to follow Jesus, they are putting their lives and the lives of their families in jeopardy. But they have such a revelation that Jesus is who he said he is. And this is God, so I'm going to serve him that they're willing to do it. That's the kind of love that this man had. So this morning, I want to briefly give you the portrait of a martyr. What do we see in Stephen's life? What do we need to move towards as followers of Jesus? Number one, he was respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. He was respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. This is why he was chosen. Again, Acts 6, 3 says this. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. I want you to see this out of the, out of the potentially thousands of Greek-speaking Christians at that time. Seven of them were chosen. Seven. And one of them was this man, Stephen. He was thought of that highly, and he was that respected by the people. Here's my question for you this morning. Do other believers respect you? Do your brothers and sisters in Christ think highly of you? Now, I can already hear you. Pastor, I don't care what other people think. You should. You should. It's not good to have a bad name and a bad reputation because you, quote, unquote, don't care what other people think. Essentially, what you're saying is, I don't care how my life affects them. And the goal is not that everybody speaks well of you. The goal is that God thinks well of you. That is the goal. But in that, if you're doing what God wants you to do, you will have a good name with the right people. You will be respected by the right people. Sometimes we have a horrible witness, but yet we try to witness to people. Sometimes we live like the devil and then try to bring people with us to church. Can I be real with y'all this morning? Because I have the mic and I'm going to be that way anyway. Sometimes we, we share Jesus with our words, but our lifestyle does not reflect the Jesus that we're sharing. And we tell people, come with me to church, come with me to church. And they're thinking, if the people in your church act like you, I don't want no parts of that. I enjoy my Sunday morning at home because they're looking for a change and they need to see our witness, not only hear our witness. Listen, I remember when I was 16, I got born again at 16 years old and just got radically changed. I was one of those kids in school that you would go, that kid is weird. And so I remember walking around, I was just so in love with God, what God had just had brought me out of. I remember walking around with this t-shirt and it said, I heart Jesus in big letters. I walked around school like that and I probably would have worn it a lot more, but it was super, super tight and I wasn't that comfortable. I was a little overweight. And so I didn't, I didn't wear it that much. But I can remember I would have a cardboard cutout as well and that I literally cut out of some construction paper and I wrote on that, that 
piece of paper, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And I put it on my clothes and walked around with it. I was that guy. Wisdom came later, okay? And I remember being a part of this Bible club and, and we, you know, like the Christians would get together in our little holy huddle and we would hear messages and the president of this club was a kid named Kyle Claunch. And Kyle and I were on the track team. He ran, I threw a shot put. And so we were, we were in like this, this uh, the dressing room right before or the whatever you call it. And I'm in there changing and I'm joking with some of my old friends and some of the jokes I was making, they weren't good jokes. And I was trying to be funny and relate. And I'll never forget Kyle walking in and busting me making these jokes. And the look on his face was one I will never forget. It was the look of, what are you doing? You're telling all of these people about Jesus, but then you go and you do this. And it's almost like the face of what Jesus, what I believe Jesus would be looking at me going, what, what are you doing? You're ruining the very witness that you're trying to give. And I'm 40 years old. I was 16 or 17 when that happened, and I will never forget that moment. Church, pay attention to your witness. Pay attention to your witness. It says Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of wisdom. Now, can I be honest with you? Sometimes we don't get in trouble for doing things that are wrong. We get in trouble for doing things that are dumb. Sometimes it's not even a sin, some of the stuff that we get in trouble for. We just do dumb stuff. That's why we need the wisdom of other people around us. We need wisdom. And wisdom really comes to us one of three ways. Wisdom comes supernaturally through the Holy Spirit. He'll give you wisdom that you don't have. And through the word of God, it comes through learning from other people. That's the one that we dislike the most. But when other people go, hey, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Or man, that probably wasn't a wise decision. And we feel like people are trying to control our lives when really is God sending them to help make us wise. This morning before I came to church, literally, I walked up to my wife and I'm rushing out. I got to try to hurry up and get here. And I'm like, baby, does this look good? And she looked at me and said, no. And as much as I didn't want to do it, I had to go back and change clothes because my wife was trying to keep me from looking like a hobo in front of your home. We have to listen to other people. But then lastly, you learn through consequences. When you refuse to listen to God, when you refuse to listen to people, sometimes the only way that you will gain wisdom is when you make those bad decisions and the consequences of those actions teach you a lesson. And that's why we're constantly trying to tell our kids, don't do this because mommy and daddy did this. Don't do that because mommy and daddy. Why? Because we're hoping that they will learn the right way when we wouldn't. So we're going to gain wisdom one of those three ways but gain wisdom. Stephen was a man of wisdom. Number two, he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Acts 6, 5 says, everyone liked this idea and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. What's so significant about this? I want you to see he was full of faith. He was a man who was full of faith. 
The opposite of being full of faith right now in the day and time that we live in is being full of fear. This, I heard a great preacher say this. He says about Stephen, he said he was completely controlled by what he believed. Church, we live in a day where everything that you hear now is negative. When you cut on the news, it's negative. I, we were at our house the other day and I cut on the news. I cut it off within 10 seconds because just in the intro of the news, it told me about this, this storm, this fire, COVID, this, that, that, the other. And I was like, just cut it off. Because the message that the enemy is wanting to put in the people of God, it's not that this, these things aren't happening. I'm not saying that they're not. But the enemy's goal for all of this is to seed you with fear. And I know if some of you were being honest, you would would say, Pastor, I'm a little scared of what might happen. I'm a little scared of this. I I have have some anxiety. And some of you are in full-blown, paralyzed fear, afraid of what might happen. But you have a choice to make. You can be full of fear or you can be full of faith. Because here's the thing, I don't know what's going to happen. Pastor, is COVID going to spike? I don't know. Pastor, is is the war going to break out? I don't know. Is the church going to be persecuted? I don't know. But what I do know is greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. That's what I do know. That's what I do know. And that's what we hold on to. We have to be controlled by our faith, what we believe. What are you putting in yourself? Are you putting God's word and God's truth? Because that's where faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? God's word. It's a steady diet of God. This may look bad, but according to your word, in the end, Jesus, we win. We win. And you choose faith. Church, let me level with you. Choose faith. You have all the reasons to be afraid. I get it. Choose faith. You have all the reasons to isolate yourself and just hope for the rapture one day. But we're called to be a witness. Choose faith. This man was full of God's faith. And I'm not just giving you some encouraging, inspirational message. The God of the universe is in you, and we win. We win. Don't let fear cripple you. But if you're going to choose to not let fear cripple you, you can't just let go of fear. You have to embrace faith. God, I trust what you say. I trust what your word says. I'm going to be full of faith. And while the world is hopeless, that's not always a bad thing. Because the world has built its hope on all of the things that are crumbling around us. And they will look for hope. And guess who has it? The witnesses of Jesus. Number three, he was a servant. He was a servant. He was chosen not to have some great title. And I've heard people say that he was a deacon. That term wasn't even used in the Bible yet. He had no title. He was simply called to go and serve these women who were complaining about not getting enough food. How many of you want that job? He was chosen to go and serve He had a servant's heart. He waited on tables. Let me tell you what fear does. Fear gets you consumed with you. 
because you worry about what's going to happen to me. Do I have enough? And do we, are we going to be fine? And it's all about me, I, myself, or my family. But love thinks about others. Love thinks about the welfare of those around you. When you have the heart of a servant, you're wanting to help other people who maybe can't even help themselves. That's a picture of the body of Christ. That's a picture of who we're called to be. We are called to be servants. And let me give you a very practical tip on how to be a good brother and a good sister and how to serve, how to minister. Because that word minister, guess what it means? Servant. To be a minister is to be a servant. To minister to someone means to serve someone. If you're riding down the road and you think about somebody in our, in our church or somebody in your life, someone in your spiritual family, don't just go, huh, pick up the phone and call them. Check on them. Text them. Hey, is everything okay? It's just thinking about you. Or pray for them. If you know they come across your mind and you know they're going through something, you start praying right then and there. Why am I saying that? Because that's a practical way that you can serve one another. And maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit put them on your mind so that you could help meet a need that God wants to meet in their life and use you to be the vessel to do it. That's how we serve one another. It's a very practical step. And if you really want to know if you have a servant's heart, because I, some of you are like, Pastor, I got a servant's heart. I'm a servant. I've been working on this for years. Be treated like a servant and see if you're still a servant. What do I mean by that? Let someone take credit for something that you did. How does your heart reply? How does your heart respond to that? How does your heart respond when you've been serving at your job and serving at your place and then someone else comes in and gets a, a, a promotion and you didn't and you were expecting it to be yours? What does your heart say? Did you do it because you wanted to be a servant? Or did you do it because you wanted to be recognized? Those are the things that will test your heart. And now I'm not empowering the rest of you to go in to test other people's hearts. We'll see if they're a servant. You're horrible. See, God will deal with that in us as well. But Stephen was a servant. He didn't have a title. He was a servant. Number four, you have to know he was this way before he was chosen. He was like this before he was serving. Remember, the apostles said, go and choose for us men like this. So he was already doing this. He was already this way. That's why he was given the promotion. That's why he was given the opportunity to serve. That's why he was given the ministry, because he was already doing it. I think so many times we think one day if I get that opportunity, I'm going to do that. Or if people say it like that, Pastor, if I win the lottery, I'm going to give the church a million dollars. First of all, you probably shouldn't be playing the lottery. Number two, I doubt it. Because if you're not willing to give when you have a little, you're definitely not going to be willing to give when you have a lot. If you're not willing to serve now, you're not going to be willing to serve later. It's not about the title, it's about your heart. You know, we have elders in our church, and I bragged on them in our last service. We have a number of elders, David and Megan O, James and Candy, Bertrand, Pastor Paul and Lynn Neal. They're elders at the Broussard campus. And I was bragging on the Bertrands earlier. Some of you know them. 
when they're not elders because they cook good crawfish and have me over from time to time. Though that should be a good qualifying factor. That's not, they're not elders for that. They are elders because they were eldering long before they had the title. They were ministering to people long before the title ever came to them. They were helping people when no one was recognizing that they were helping people. So they were eldering and chose themselves. That's what Stephen did. He was a man who had a good reputation, already helping people, already well thought of by the people. So that's why he was given the position. Church, don't wait for the title. Even in your jobs, come in to be real practical with you. Don't wait for the promotion to start taking responsibility at your job. Every promotion that I've gotten as a pastor or in different ministry settings, I was doing that job before I was ever given that title. I was ministering to teenagers long before I became a youth pastor. I was ministering to adults long before I became a small groups pastor. I was preaching to you guys long before I became the campus pastor of this church. Don't accept the title, accept the mission. Accept the calling. And then God will open the doors for the future. At your job, that doesn't mean if you want to be the boss, go be bossy. That doesn't mean go tell people what to do. That means you take responsibility when nobody else is. That needs to be done, I'll do it. Well, that's outside of your job description. Doesn't matter. I want this place to succeed, so I'll do that. Number five. He was full of God's grace and power. Chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performing amazing miracles and signs among the people. This word grace doesn't mean he was a really nice, gracious guy. This word grace means that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish these things. This was a grace gift, a grace given to him to do these miraculous signs and wonders. Yes, he was a servant, but he was also full of the power of God. And my desire for you as a church is that you operate in the grace gift that God has given you. Some of you, God has given you the ability to pray for the sick, but you would never know that because you never pray for the sick. Some of you, God has given the ability to really speak encouraging words, even on behalf of the Lord, but you never do it because you're too nervous and afraid to. There are gifts throughout this body that God has sitting and in store inside of you that you never release and let go because you're holding on to it. God, I'm scared, I'm nervous. But it's the part that you play in the body. It's the gift that you bring to the body. You may be an incredible encourager, encourage people. You're afraid of being rejected. Guess what? It happens. It happens. But play the part that God gave you. Because you're filled with God's power as well. You, I'm, I'm, just because you have a title in front of your name, that doesn't mean that you're the only one called by God to do something for God. Every one of you as witnesses for Jesus are called to do something for God. There's purpose attached to your lives if you will embrace that. That doesn't mean this doesn't give you license to go start being weird. Don't start sending me emails. Jesus is coming back on 2-22-22. Don't do that. Be accountable. 
Go to someone in authority and say, I have this gift. What do I do with this? How do I use this for the glory of God? And let us help empower you to use your gift in God's house and for his people and to be a witness. But Stephen was full of God's power. We should be as well. Number six, he knew the word of God. I'm almost done. He knew the word of God. Acts chapter six, verse 10. None of them, those those Jewish people that ended up killing him, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. See, the arguments that they were having were about the Old Testament and about the writings of the rabbis. They were having these conversations. There's no way Jesus could be the Messiah. There's no way we missed that. But Stephen knew the word of God, and so he was able to put them all in their place because he knew God's word. He was a Greek-speaking Jew, but he knew the word. He knew what God not only did in the past, but he knew what God was doing in the present. Some of us are very well acquainted with what God used to do, but how many of us know what God is doing? Stephen knew both. He knew the past and he showed that to them, but he knew what Jesus did and he knew what Jesus was doing. And the day we live in, people of God, children of God, We've got to know what God is doing. See, when we cut on the news, we cut on commercials, we cut on movies and TV shows, the messaging of the enemy is very present. I'm watching the Olympics with my kids, and I'm like, just cut it off doing the commercials. I just Because the messaging of the enemy is so prevalent that if we don't know God's word, we will buy into that lie. We will fall for the lies of the culture instead of knowing God's truth. We've got to know the word. We've got to be able to stand on the word. Because everything around you will tell you, will eventually get to the place where it starts telling you, Christianity is fake. Christianity is just a bunch of judgmental people. No, we're not. some people may be. But those who genuinely love God, it's not that we want to hurt anybody or condemn anybody. It's that we know what God says and we have to obey that. We have to be willing to stand for truth when no one else is willing to. We have to be willing to speak the truth and bring light to darkness when darkness is trying to overcome. That's who we are. But you have to know the word in order to do that. And I'm ending with this. Number seven. He was full of love. Stephen was full of love. Acts chapter 6, verse 59. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. How many of us would be able to say that? As people are literally throwing rocks at you to kill you. Enraged and inflamed. But just the simple fact of you speaking He said, God, forgive them. He mimicked Jesus, Lord, forgive them. Why? Because he wasn't preaching to them just because he was right. And he wasn't preaching to them just because he was angry at what they were doing. He was preaching to them because he loved them. He loved them. And sometimes when you love people, you have to love them enough to tell them the hard truth. We don't go out and condemn the world. We're not holding up picket signs to tell the world how horrible they are. Our job is not to condemn the world because guess what? It's already condemned. They're already far from God. 
But what they do need is the hard truth that sometimes they don't like and sometimes they don't want to hear. But sometimes that's the truth that changes their life forever. We have to be willing to tell the truth, not because we want to condemn people, but because we love them. And a part of that love is this. Stephen was a bridge. And let me explain what I mean by that. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem and Judea. Jerusalem was inside of Judea. And that was primarily the Jewish people. The Jewish culture. Then it says, towards the, the last part of that, it says, to the ends of the earth. That was us. The Gentiles who wouldn't have never heard this message had it not been for a man named Paul who went out and preached to the Gentiles that Jesus wants to save you, not just the Jewish people. So we see the ends of the earth with this man who stood there watching Stephen be killed. He had to be influenced by that. And then you see the apostles reaching the, the Jewish people. We're in the middle See, Samaria, part Jews, or in this case, that was the people that Philip really reached, and we'll talk about them next week. But these Greek-speaking Jews, this was the people Stephen went after. He was the bridge. He, his death paved the way for this man, Paul, to bring the gospel to us. His death gave boldness to the church that said, no matter what comes our way, we are going to stand on truth. We're going to love the world enough to tell them that truth. And here's the thing. He preached the longest message in Acts, and guess what? He never saw the fruit of it because he died as he preached it. So he didn't preach some bold message and obey God and end up getting a promotion and get to sit at the apostles' meetings. No, he died right there. What am I saying? His love for God and his love for people paved the way for us. Church, I'm going to ask you a question. Would you be okay? Would you be okay? If you faced hardships and problems and you never reaped the benefits in this life, but your kids did, if you battled against sin and you fought all of the victories and all of the hard stuff that you're having to fight so that one day your kids would never have to deal with those things, would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with going through problems and hardships and temptations so that you can sit with a younger man or a younger woman and say, let me tell you how God can bring you out of that because I've been through it myself. Would you be okay with being a bridge? See, the reason Stephen was is because he was full of love. Love for God and love for people. That is the portrait of a martyr. Close your eyes. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for how honest and real the Bible is how raw it is. And Lord, we just saw the, the story. We saw the, the portrait of a man who loved you enough to lay his life down every day of his life, even to the very end. 
And I pray that we would be inspired today to daily lay our lives down for you. Sacrificing for others. Working on our character and our integrity and our intimacy with you so that we can be a good witness to the world. Having the boldness and the courage, God, to speak the truth in love even when it hurts. And God, to love you so much that we consider it nothing to say that we're willing to give it all for you. I thank you for that. And I pray that you would breathe on this people. Spirit of boldness, spirit of evangelism, spirit of discipleship that permeates our region as you make us witnesses for you. Thank you for saving us and loving us. When everybody's eyes closed and heads bowed, if you're here and you say, Pastor Gabe, I'm, I'm not born again. I'm not a part of this kingdom. I'm far away from God. I'm not right with him. I'm not talking about whether or not you've gone to church. I don't, I'm not talking about whether or not you were baptized or christened as a kid. I'm not talking about your church attendance. I'm talking about whether or not you know in your heart of hearts, I fully belong to him. It's something that only happens to you once. If there's sin in your life, I encourage you to repent. This is not for you to be born again. You repent. But I'm talking about those who need to be born again, who need to embrace Jesus as the Lord of their life. Jesus said it this way, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are first born again. And the way you do that, it's a very simple process that we talk about every week here at Our Savior Church. It's as easy as ABC. A, you admit. Admit what? That you're a sinner, that you're far away from God. You're honest and say, I just, I'm not close to him. And there's sin that separates me from him. And B, you believe that the solution to that problem, the bridge over that chasm is the fact that Jesus died for you. And C, you confess. Confess what? That Jesus is now the Lord of your life. Not just your savior, not just I'm a church goer. He is now the boss. He calls the shots. He is my Lord and I will follow him. So with no one looking around today, if you would say, Pastor, that's me and I want to be born again. I want my sins forgiven. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life and I want to follow him. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand and I'm going to lead you in a prayer of surrender to him. And Jesus is going to meet you right where you're at. One, two, three. If that's you, lift it up. You'll say, that's me. Thank you. I see your hand back there. Thank you. I see your hand back there. Anyone else? This is your moment. Lift it up high. Thank you. You can put them down. Church, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with those who are making that decision to be born again today. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go there. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on this earth, and a relationship with the Father. So I turn from my sin. I repent of my sin. And I make you the Lord of my life. 
And from this moment on, God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen.